Hello and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I am co-host Gabriel Krauser and joined by Nicholas Lorimer. How's it everyone? Good to uh, good to be back. Yes, we are late again um, due to, I don't actually know why. Gabriel, why are we late? Uh, we've been waiting for inspiration to strike. Uh, and it has, it has not come. I, I, we've got a couple of half-baked ideas, so I think we should warn all of our listeners that this may not be the greatest episode in terms of quality, but uh, we will leave that up to you to decide. Because, of course, yeah. the wisdom of the masses is much greater than our humble uh, opinions. <laughs> our two noodles trying to getting baked here in the in the depression of COVID nineteen, of race war, of economic catastrophe. Oh, I suppose goodness. that is that is kind of the thing we could talk about. It's just the sort of the way that these past couple of weeks, in a sense, they feel very historic because it feels like something is going on in the world. But in the other sense, it feels like the same thing over and over. You know, another report about some economy falling over somewhere. Um, another social disturbance. Someone getting very angry somewhere. Uh, yeah. I listen and to... people dying. Yeah. yeah, and people dying. And people dying. Um, I actually have a friend who... Uh, his mom is a doctor uh, in a state hospital, and she may have caught the COVID um, after a senior nurse went to the funeral of a nurse who had died of COVID in the hospital. Jeez, and it got me thinking about how there seems to be a general failure of leadership across all of South Africa. And I know this is a tired phrase. It's one that people like to kind of kick about in the elite media is they say, oh, we have a crisis of leadership. But what I think that really means is that we have a crisis me, of leadership. Yeah, in the sense that <laughs> they, they always talk about it in the sort of like very vague terms. But I think what it means is this, is that we don't have leaders who are loyal to institutions who will make the tough decisions required of themselves. Um, and this is pretty much universal. I mean, the, <laughs> you know, higher government, we know, we know this is all about. But I think an undiscussed issue in South Africa is the weakness of a lot of middle management. I think a lot of our private sector is not actually that well run. Um, I don't know if that's your impression, but if you ever tried to interact with like a bank or a cell phone company, it's a surprisingly unpleasant experience, despite the fact that market forces should suggest otherwise. I don't know. I mean, I've got to say I've had pretty limited experience with banks myself. Uh, I, I keep <laughs> Being it. a free willing spirit that you are. I keep it simple. Uh, yeah, I haven't got a bond or anything. <laughs> do you, do you, but, have, a, but do you had, have like a, a mattress with all of your money in it and a stash of gold buried somewhere? Yes, I've, I've, got, I've got my gold. My gold. Oh, God. Just remembered I need to go check in on my gold. Um, <laughs> no, but my I, I've had very positive experiences uh, with cell phone companies. I remember really? two, two years ago, I was taking care of a house in Emerentia, close to where you are, and uh, there was a problem with the Wi-Fi and there were tenants and I had to set up a whole new Wi-Fi system and it was with, through one of the major internet com uh, cell phone companies and they sort of talked me through like a 24-step complicated process in like 15 minutes and it was super polite, super professional, followed up the next day to check if it was still working. And, and I thought, yeah, this is, this is, I mean, it's not a popular line to take. Uh, I remember <laughs> when I used to watch the funny late night guys on American TV, like the two, the two go to, you know, when they were tired of like making fun of government or tired of making fun of uh, white monopoly capital, the no, the standard sort of go to no. thing that they could, we could all agree is really bad is uh, sort of fast food chains and cell phone companies. So it was always like Verizon and Arby's would be the butt of the joke. And I thought, yeah, well, maybe it's true, but you know, uh, and, and, and some of them are artificial oligopolies that are protected from competition from outside forces by, uh, weird regulations that really just uh, entrench established well, banks, forces. Banks, I think, are, are, yeah, are a very good example of that kind of industry because the world over banks tend to be quite strictly controlled and regulated and they take a lot. You know, it's very difficult to just go out and clap together Start a, a bank. bank. Unless you've, yeah, unless you've got a, a whole bunch of friends in the right places as our PBS friends showed us. <laughs> oh, man. I th you see, that's like a classic example of a de depressing story and a failure of leadership. You know, yes. where is... where? So Shamila Batoy, you know, has huge kudos and a lot of credibility to her, but it's been like two years and 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 what we've gotten in, in these charges is is like kind of the worst possible outcome. You've got a few middle managers uh, yeah. 
who've been taken out, who, who've been charged. We'll see if they get prosecuted, if, you know, if they, if they people, get convicted. People who are eminently people. sacrificable. <laughs> yes. And no big names. So it's like just mm. enough that, that the Ramaphoria camp will say, you know, look, we've got accountability. Yeah, look, we, look at, uh, so they'll list off a number, like we've made 300 arrests for corruption or something like that. Yeah. But the, 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 the real charge of leadership, as you say, is like, to make a decision that's loyal to the institution, you've got you've got this institution, the prosecuting authority, and you know that yeah. if you put a name brand politician uh, in the dock, uh, they're going to be large numbers of people that are going to say you're just doing this because you're a racist. In just the way that they went after Bulalani in Luka in 2003, calling him a pimpy, and went after everyone since who's gone after the Zuma camp. And uh, if you if you really care. Then those dislikes, those disses, are not going to put you off. You're gonna, you're gonna do what's right yeah. in any case. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's I suspect in the in the case that that brought us to mind of that that nurse. I mean, I have no idea uh, why she decided to go to that funeral. Whether it was because the nurse was a close friend of hers or whatever. Um, and this may come off as a bit heartless, but I think that when one is kind of taken what is, in a sense, to me, I consider quite a serious obligation, which is to be a senior health professional in yeah. a community that is really badly resourced, right? Like this is in, uh, in the rural areas. Uh, you know, if you mess up, if you set a bad example, you're dealing with yeah. terrible resources and people often who are not very well trained, you're going to cause people to die. You may even kill yourself. I mean, you know, yeah. a lot of a lot of people are, are, are like that. So, and, and I think it, it also shows in a sense that in South Africa, our problems really do run quite deep. If... Uh, you know, Ramaphosa was everything everyone said him to be—the great, glorious leader that he, that everyone is in everyone's imagination. He really would struggle to turn this country around because a lot of our problems really do run down right to the bottom level. To the sad two teacher who doesn't show up for work uh, because they know that they can get away with it. Um, to the sort of local councillor who steals everything that's not nailed to the floor. I don't think. A lot of people like to talk about South Africa as very much a sort of, if we just deal with the problem at the top, it would fix everything. But I think that may have been true maybe a decade or two ago, but I think the rot has set in on a lot of levels now. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Do you think I'm right? Yeah, I don't. I don't. I think that... You see, that's your optimistic streak coming through. <laughs> no, it's not It's not that I'm an optimist. It's... It's that I think that... Uh, there is a, a serious disjunct between most people's private values and the norms that di sort of dictate the public square. So if, and, and, and it's, and so I'm not an optimist in the sense that I think that human beings can be much more hypocritical than uh, we usually take into account and that that hypocrisy can be super difficult to undo. So I think that particularly so what you're saying is failing that to, do their so, duty. What, it's because the honor code is not programming their behavior okay, in the right kind yeah. of way. You know, if you've got someone who's on the cusp of like, do I do this? Like, you know, going to a funeral, it might, there's a, there's a strong honorable reason to do that, right? The, the community yeah, will course. expect me to show face yeah. and, 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 and mourn together. That sounds like, you know, any person with a little bit of, uh, self-interest is going to, is going to be hesitant about doing that in a COVID environment. And if someone still does it, it seems to me like probably the strike through reason is some honor code. And so that, so that person, I agree with you that it might've been the wrong choice. Um, but, but I don't think that it's because the rot has set in very deep. I think it's because the rot is superficially. So everywhere that superficial rot of like how it is that you get public expressions, uh, what gets, what gets esteemed, what's get disesteemed in, in, in public. And if I can, if, if I can take you back, I've been so I've been working on this document um, about this thought, uh, sort of the thing kind the thing of that's driven you mad over the past few days. Is that is that what you're referring? Yeah, it's kind of related to schooling and and a lot of the private schools' responses to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and it just, you know, I had a memory from I don't know, 15 years now ago or whenever it was 2007 when i was at school that i that i'd completely forgotten but i think very nicely illustrates the point so i was a prefect at when i was in matric i was head of culture uh whoop de dup and all prefects were expected to take a pledge 
and that pledge was to not drink alcohol, even if you were 18. Yes. Um, I think it was still going through to my year, actually. Until the end of your prefecture. Now, that pledge, when the pledge had been instituted, it was like in the 90s, Sinstidians, the school I was at, was like the, the most hot, uh, nouveau fresh riche, commodity, yeah, yeah, fresh commodity in the business in in the um, private school business, <laughs> yeah, and it was really, I mean, Santon was exploding. It was right on top of the richest mile in Africa. It also had a really strong record of being racially progressive, so it was like highly attractive to black diamonds, uh, white nouveau riche people, and you know, I, I spoke with with heads of the school at the time. And because uh, they would take me out on drives to try and uh, get to go to primary schools to get people, at primary school heads to to be interested in sending their kids along to Saints. And they said, you know, it used to be like if we had a class of 100, we could admit 100 grade eights, we'd have like 400 applications. So that gives you an extra benefit of then you can decide who you want to take in. And so then you can have the best sports team and the best, you know, the yeah. best rugby team, and the best water polo team, best and, the best and, yeah, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And that itself feeds back in because then more people want to apply to the school. So it is in this very happy place. And then, you know, it's still a really good school, but things fundamentally change. Like 20 other private schools opened up in that area. And so that kind of, you know, the market. Yeah, and there's a hell of a lot of competition. And they a lot of them offer not just the standard private school experience, but the, uh, you know, you can get a more academically focused one, more sports focused one, et cetera. Or, or like Michael Mount, more like Feely, you know, like yeah. everyone's okay. Okay. So anyway, so... So one of the problems when it was, in, was, was, was such a hot commodity was a kind of arrogance, a kind of impunity, and that mm. expressed itself in drinking. Also, the nouveau riche, like a lot of kids from like, you know, divorced families going through, like just, just a lot of kind of social problems together yeah. with this tremendous effort. You like to flash their cash. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I matric dance, you know, guys were arriving in helicopters and suiting off in limousines. And it, it was <laughs> nice. So, so... There was a rugby match in the 90s, let's say, and the first team, we had like the best first team, but we lost the match and two dudes vomited like during the match because they were so hung over. They were still drunk, basically. <laughs> and it was just a disgrace. It was a humiliation. And yeah. so the school tried to do something about it. So they instituted the pledge. Uh, and we we're like the only school who did it or maybe other schools did it, but whatever. That became like one of our things. And, and then for a while, it kind of worked because it didn't stop people drinking, but it kind of just made made it more shameful. So it's something people did more in private. Like they were more careful about not getting caught drinking and so on. And then when I was in grade nine, so this is like 2004, there was a major scandal uh, because a bunch of matrics and prefects were caught drinking on campus the night even, before Valentine's even, Day. Even myself in the primary school uh, learned about yeah. this story, and I think we had to have yeah. a talking to where people told us about alcohol and all sorts of things like that. I don't remember it very well. Yeah. yeah, so the deal was they arranged that, you know, you, all, the, all the schools have like this Valentine's Day thing. You can send cards to other schools, and then but then the prefects and the matrix have to arrange the things by grade so the next day they can be handed out. And they were doing that, and it is a bit of a mission. <laughs> you know, you kind of you stuck there. Bless you, Nick. You're stuck there all Monday nights. Um, and they decided to keep themselves company with like a couple of bottles of vodka. And they were so drunk that when one of the, one of the staff found them, like one of the boys vomited on the staff's shoe. And then the decision was made to expel a bunch of those boys. Like five yeah, of them not, were expelled. Not a great move. If you're, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be drunk and throw up on a staff member's shoe, it's not a yeah, great place to do it. It's really <laughs> obvious. And the reason that they were expelled was partly because those five boys had a long history. Their entire, they'd been to the prep like Nick, you know, they were, which were often the worst kids who, who'd been there all 12 years from grade one. Because uh, they were like the most in 13, <laughs> exactly. They were like the most, they felt the most like we own this place. And anyway, often quite clicky. Anyway, and these kids had just been really naughty the whole way through. So they were expelled, um, but the parents didn't like it. So they sued the school and the Maverick at the time, before the Daily Maverick, made a big issue about it and put us on the cover page and try to expose this like, I don't know, like, this punitive nastiness. Oh, banning alcohol amongst matrix. Now, of course, Maverick uh, publishes many of those who are very sympathetic to banning alcohol for all adults indefinitely. Yeah, far but more Puritan than it used to be. Seems like the funny how things change. Yeah, yeah, they're not very strong. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> anyway, so so when I became a, a prefect, 
I said, I want to abandon the pledge. And I said that, that I, I told them in my interview, like, you guys should watch out about making me a prefect because I, if I take the pledge, I want to live by the pledge. But I don't think that my that I and my fellow prefects will live by the pledge. So I think we should just abandon it because it's become a ridiculous hypocrisy. We've dealt with the problem. Like, we don't have overt crazy drinking, but we do have people drinking on weekends uh, at parties and at bris and stuff. And, and it's just not going away. So you're just making us liars. Like, everyone knows... That that prefects break the pledge. Yeah. Anyway, so the, the headmaster gave me. It was a new headmaster. He gave me three weeks to sort of make the case and do some research and like and lobby and stuff. And I did. And I was kind of the the as soon as I started to, to do well, I was sort of called in and told like what a wicked child I was by the headmaster and company. And oh, I was a bit demoralizing. <laughs> and and then we made the final arguments in the prefect's room, and then we had to vote. And I was the guy who had to count the votes. I was the only guy not allowed to vote because I was the one making the case. And so, therefore, I was the guy who had to count the votes. And so, everyone else had to close their eyes so we could do an anonymous vote. So, I was the only one who could see who voted for what. And a majority of the prefects voted to keep the pledge. And I watched that weekend that the same guys who'd been saying we should keep the pledge, the same guys who were making public arguments and then voted for it, were the same guys who went drinking that weekend. <laughs> at a club, I was at that club, not drinking, and I and I I I I, I that, left after an hour, furious. That is that is the kind of brilliant. That's like what a sociologist dreams of seeing as an experiment. Yeah. And the, <laughs> so, what's your and theory you know on what why the they did it? The weirdest thing is, dude, the guys who voted against the pledge. I can't say names because I did take this pledge, but like the guys who voted not against the pledge to discontinue it, those were like of the small minority who voted that way. Like more than half of them didn't drink in any case. Some of them for religious reasons, some of them because they were just that kind of guy. It was like perfect hypocrisy, right? And the pledge was still there. And every year there was some version of that same story. Like everyone thinks it's okay to drink and everyone's going to go ahead and do it in private. But no one can ever say in public, you know what, sir, mm -hmm. it's actually okay if 18-year-olds or 17-year-olds in the privacy of their own homes or at a club, if they can get in, have a little tipple. Oh, so that's where we are in South well, Africa. We've got like this pledge. We've got this honor code that pledges us to imbecility and to wokeness and to racialism, according to which, you know, reputations get pulled by race so that like if you're white, you must feel either amazing about yourself because the people who've sort of described uh, gravity and discovered anesthesia and figured out dentistry were white or you have to feel terribly guilty because the Nazis were white and Leopold II was white and Cecil John Rhodes was white and all the worst things in the world were done at the hands of white men. And if you're black, you have to look at a black guy winning a prize or Miss South Africa getting Miss Universe or, uh, you know, or, or some dude winning the Oscars and he's black and he says, you know, this is actually goes out to all black people and have to be like, yeah, that does go out to all black people. That like that makes me better. I'm better because that other black guy did something good. Like, or you have to worry about like, you know, when someone black is criticized in public, like Jacob Zuma, uh, that this is somehow dissing blackness, that this is undermining blackness and that you have to, uh, you know, either take the hit it's and like just accept a, that he's so bad as, that we should as, just. As the, as the Kasatu slogan says, an injury to one is an injury to all. Yeah. And so this is the pledge. This is the South African pledge. That 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 our that our race that our personal statuses should go up and down according to our race, and and ordinary South Africans just don't believe that, dude. I I do I like last week we again went out speaking to business, uh, small you know spaza shop runners in in Yeovil and in Hillbrow, and I've been talking to people in Melville. Dude, bottom of the food chain, middle of the food chain, top of the food chain, people are way more reasonable than that yeah but isn't that all about context in a, to a certain degree so obviously I, I you know i largely agree with what you're saying but you know so 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 the theory of the esteem economy is one way to explain why people say one thing but then do another right yeah but isn't it also it's part of the reason that they say the thing is that uh it's it's very easy to to have the responsible opinion in the quiet environment where maybe you know this interesting hairy chap is interviewing them and asking them questions and it's a small business owner who of course are the salt of the earth who make the economy run who are some of the hardest working people in the country 
Yeah. Um, and that okay, actually so you there's, think a there's far, some sampling there's a, by there's a yeah. there's a far darker uh, sort of uh, a, a spirit hanging over over many of the hearts of the people in this country that they're not even they're not willing to say in a certain environment, but they're willing to behave. Um, and that that has set in over years of having you know it's 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 like an effect of the esteem economy is kind of laid the superficial level and it sort of seeps down through the cracks, so oh, that when no one is it. watching, yeah, it when no one is watching, people continue to behave that way even when there's no there's no reward. Reward. no one will know. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that I think that could be true. Um, I mean, I think it's definitely true that the longer we keep to the pledge, the more. Uh, the the more we habituate uh, racism, racialism, and all other kinds of dishonorable behaviors, and the, and mm. hypocrisy itself, and the more you do that, uh, the harder it is, even under good leadership, to to turn the ship around. Mm. I just think I just don't think I just think it's surprising how 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 little how the extent to which it hasn't seeped that deep in yet. And and that's part of the reason that you know that I think that we could. Well, that's arguably the most important question about South Africa's future, isn't it? Is how deep has it set in? Yeah, yeah, that is that is the question. And oh, you know, I, if if you hang out with VIT students, God, I hung out with another VIT student this weekend. <laughs> Big mistake. Terrible mistake. Jesus, dude, resident as a, as a former VIT student, <laughs> resident of Westcliff, like heir to a, a, a many multi-million rand trust, and so vicious about all things capital, all things white, you know, somehow. Uh, somehow, somehow, really gross in that regard. So I, which is okay. But so, so here's the thing. So if you know, here's a private conversation between me and and one 19 year old young woman studying art at Wits, who says, you know, she she too feels like she should leave the country because, uh, you know, she kind of wants to become an art professor one day or an art critic and. She just doesn't think that it's right for white people to comment on black people's work because that's undermining their humanity and it's perpetrating a systematic power imbalance where, you know, white people I mean, does, are in the, charge. I'm sorry, but like this sounds like a Victorian missionary talking about how you can't criticize the, the the locals too much because it will undermine their attempts to civilize themselves or something. It sounds like nineteenth century racism. It yeah, really does. Dude. It's amazing. Yeah. It's it's like they can't hear themselves. <laughs> dude, okay. And this is exactly my point. Like we to understand how I don't like I, 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 there's this there's this very nasty thing of like the the dear white people letter or the dear black people letter. Like you just uh want one group of people to act differently. Like, I think we should all act differently towards the same kind of ideals. Like, all citizens should have the ideal of citizenship, and and that should be a guiding sort of program for, for public behavior. But I do think it's worth noticing how uh, people codify their own behaviors according to race. And to understand most white racists today in South Africa and in America, I think you just do have to look at the 19th century Victorian model. It and is. it's it's they are talking like it's the white man's burden. So so the white man's burden. I feel like we have to read some of the white man's burden to our listeners so that Which they can get us. Those of you who don't know, it's a Rudyard Kipling poem, is it? Yes. Written yes. in 18. Yeah. Give us some context about the UK's general trajectory from the start of the 19th century to the end of the 19th century. So the the UK is the first country in the world to industrialize. So it goes through this process of, you know, enormous change that will catapult it from the perpetual cycle of, you know, starvation and all these other things into the modern world. Um, and the UK is really starting to boom. It comes into its own as the great maritime power, it defeats the French and Napoleon at the beginning of the century. Um, and it really starts to explode all over the world. Its economy is going great. Its colonies are expanding its dominance in India. It becomes the superpower that controls the whole world. Uh, it works to abolish slavery in the early parts of the century. Um, and it does then it starts to take, yeah. 
Yeah, there's a whole bunch of good stuff. Either, either, either along with the imperialism. <laughs> along with the imperialism. I mean, so in India, it's got a lot of Indian allies who are fighting with it. It's like it's a the the Indian colonial yeah. war. I feel like I'm looking for a really good book. If anyone knows a good book on because it's the first it's the first form of sort of modern colonialism as we now understand it because what the dutch had yeah. been doing previous to that and what the portuguese and the spanish had been doing previous to that small was potatoes. was kind of yeah was small potatoes and and so i've been i've been i've just been watching like hour long youtube histories which i which are not my favorite thing so i'm looking for a really good book about that period but it does seem pretty clear that part of what was going on in india was that there'd been kind of you know india uh most of india had been sort of united relatively and then split there was like kind of a competition between a city state yeah, and a nationalist so, model and when the brits so what, arrived there were what, warring what factions here is as as the europeans enter a con uh, some sort of region the local a lot of local polities decide to ally with them because they essentially just see them as a replacement for whatever overlord they currently have and one that might be preferable because it's far away which means that yeah. they would, and it in might theory, be fairer, and it might, and it yeah. might boost trade. Exactly, I'd be and, offering and a better deal. Yeah, and um, so, and, and that is, yeah, okay. So, so, so the Indian conquests are like kind of interesting in that regard because you often have Indians and Brits fighting against Indians, so that it's so that it's not altogether obvious that it, you know, it doesn't fit the sort of preconceived picture of the, like the best example of that is the uh, the history of the Sikh people. Um, who are enemies of the British, but then later are sort of absorbed into the British uh, possessions uh, in India, and they become some of the fiercest, most loyal defenders of the British Empire in India, to the yeah. extent that one of the most famous acts of this is this is a tangent, but indulge me, one of the most famous acts of uh, British barbarity in the struggle for Indian independence was a massacre. I can't remember. I think it was in the forties or fifties. Um, There's the nineteen forties. We've we've gone forward hundred yeah, yeah. years. Yeah, gone for 100 years. And it happened just outside the holiest temple of the Sikhs in the world. Yes, uh, yes. All in India. So the man who carried out the massacre is reviled everywhere. The British hate him because he's undermined their rule in India and doomed any hope of holding the colony. In Hindu Indians absolutely despise him. Muslim Indians despise him. The nationalists, everyone hates him. Except the Sikhs who give him an award for defending their temple from a Hindu mob. <laughs> Right. <laughs> this is the complexity of talking about the way that yeah. people interact with colonial states. It was yeah. never it's never the black and white image of one v the other, one good, one bad, everyone's on this side, everyone's on that side. It was always a grey mush. It was very difficult yeah. to pick apart. Of conflicting anyway, interests. So, okay. the, so the point century, is the other yeah. the other good thing that the Brits do in in the start of the nineteenth century is that journalism kind of flourishes. So, hmm. you know, after the printing press, the first big thing is pamphlets uh, in, you know, sort of late medieval, early enlightenment Europe. And that gives birth to the reformation, splintering of the church, the Catholic and Protestant, and 100 years of war. By the time you get to early 19th century London, you've got real newspapers. So it's not just, yeah. pam uh, you know, the like the pamphlets are much today. more like Twitter. Pamphlets are mm. much more like Twitter. You know, they just have like, oh, these people are evil. Go take them out. Uh, yeah. They're usually whereas, quite short. Yeah. They, it, it's not very heavy in informational content. And, and it's, it's, not, it's not an institution. It's like a it's like propaganda thing. Yeah. Exactly. So you finally got uh, proper journalist uh, newspapers going. And, and, the, and the triumphs that the newspapers can claim are immense, uh, including the abolition of childhood labor, uh, including the the abolition of certain working conditions, uh, including the reform of like a kind of de facto indentured labor service in the UK and then building up to the abolition of slavery. So they've, you know, they've got like a quite a sophisticated body politic going thing going. The duel gets abandoned as a, a proper way for gentlemen to resolve disputes amongst yeah. each other they no longer think the person i called you a liar and you're saying that i'm a liar well let's figure <laughs> out who's telling the truth by firing pistol bullets at or, one another or stabbing at each other <laughs> you know it's like they it's like things have the, the duel has become laughable a laughable joke but by but towards the end of the 19th century the brits are not doing so well they are they are in I mean, on one reading, they start the Anglo the Second Boer War, 
because the Boers are trying to, amongst other things, um, loosen their grip on the labor market because the Boers have figured out that if black people earn more money in the mines, then that's actually going to be good for the Boers because it means more of the profits coming from the gold is staying local. And Boer artisans, tallow makers, shoe repairers, and the like are going to have a a bigger and deeper market to sell into. Also, you've got a lot of white dudes in the mines. Um, And the Brits are not interested in that. They have this sort of labor market where it's literally illegal if you're working for one mine to then go and work for another mine. It's illegal to try and solicit labor from another mine. Very nice and ordered. Yes, so it's all so it's so it's pretty atrocious. And then in the course of the Boer War, the Brits, of course, do their fabulous labor camp uh, uh, concentration. You know, effectively kill seven tenths of all Boer women and children that are detained until Emily Hobhouse blows it up again. The the, the British media being useful in curbing their worst impulses. You know, if you think about it, before the Boer War, the last big battles that they'd fought. In, in Africa were against the Mahdi's, the sort of original ISIS. Of, uh, in Sudan. In Sudan. And, and there, although their cause was, was more just and their, and their means of fighting also far more just, it was also completely disastrous. Uh, uh, they, they, they were humiliated. They let their great hero die in Khartoum. Uh, because they took like a year to get to him because they used the silliest way of, of traveling the River Nile that they possibly could have. So the, the empire was getting too big to administer the world. It was too clunky. The honor codes were kind of reinforcing like an eaten elite uh, it, silliness. It also, yeah, it also really starts to embrace racism. Yep. Uh, so this it, is- it, yeah, this is, this is where we're going with this. Uh, these colonial elites had begun to pop up all around the British Empire. These were people, locals uh, in their empire who were educated by British missionaries usually, um, and they really bought into the empire. They loved the empire. Um, they saw themselves as separate from a lot of the other local peoples. So you had, for example, in South Africa, a lot of mission-educated black converts to Christianity who spoke extremely good English, dressed in the Western dress, and they kind of bought into the whole idea of the empire. And these people were very eager to get involved in the colonial administrations to eventually one day become ladies and gentlemen in London and sort of, you know, keep the empire going. And the British establishment begins to really aggressively exclude them, mostly on the basis of race. And this is following on because after Darwin uh, publishes his theories, you know, about uh, evolution and that kind of thing, there's a there's a strand of the thought of the way that people look at evolution to say, well, this obviously applies to societies and race and uh, in a very specific way and that there's hierarchies of race and hierarchies of society and uh, we can't allow these weak ones to mix with the strong ones because it will dilute the strong ones. And so they begin to basically start excluding Indians and black people in a very serious way from their uh, from being involved in the upper levels of their societies. Um, and at which the same of course, time, it, the consoling like, argument is that you know, these dudes are noble savages, that the best way to live your life is in accordance with the rhythms of nature and uh, to commune with the animals and with your own ancestors and the like. And the 19th century is when the is when London, Britain in general, becomes the center of the romantic poetic movement. And you've got Wordsworth and um, Blake and... Uh, who else came before Kipling? Uh, to a lesser extent, uh, Elizabeth Browning and her husband, all writing these poems that that really deify nature. You know, at, at school, we all had to learn Wordsworth's poem, The World is Too Much With Us, getting and spending all of the time. Oh, life in the city is miserable. The guys who really know what's what are the people who know how to sit under a tree and just like be one with the world. And that's what... Uh, black people can do that's what indian people can do and and so the terrible thing it would be a terrible terrible mistake to elevate them into positions of responsibility where they need to wear go into an office and drink coffee and read all of the time and And there's sort of there's two they've actually got the the better yeah uh, there's there's two strands two kind of strands of thought that emerge from this one is the um the version you just talked about the romantic version the other one is that well these people if we just need to shepherd them like their children until they evolve to our level but that will take a very long time because they're uh, you know so far behind us kind of thing 
Um, so so being... here, yeah, sorry. Yeah, carry on. So here by the end of the century, you have Rudyard Kipling giving expression. And this is a guy who's who's who spent a lot of time in the colonies and had real personal human I interactions. I think he grew up in India, didn't he? Yeah, something like that. And anyway, so so this is how he's kind of reconciled himself to to the problem of race. Take up the white man's burden. Send forth the best ye breed. Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captive's need. To wait in heavy hardness on fluttered folk and wild, your new court sullen peoples, half devil and half child. Take up the white man's burden in patience to abide, to veil the threat of terror and check the show of pride by open speech and simple and hundred times made plain to seek another's profit and work another's gain. So to take up the white man's uh, burden is to seek another's profit and work another's gain. It's working very nicely for the half child, half yes. devil who, who, who you've just caught and who doesn't know better. But slowly but surely, if you take up the white man's burden, You'll 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 bring them higher to civilization. Now I'm. It's a long poem, so I'm going to skip over a lot of it, and uh, and uh, and go to the last three standards. Take up the white man's burden and reap his old reward, the blame of those ye better, the hate of those ye guard. Hey, isn't that that is like 21st it's, century woke whiteness? This yeah, is what you, just you need to do. change it a little bit here and there. You it's need perfect. to go out there and be like, uh, um, um, you know, cover your face with tape because white people shouldn't speak, and uh, you know, use yourself as a human shield. And you know what? Some black people are still going to say that you're a white devil, and they're going to, and they're still going to blame you. Though, though. The hate of those ye God, the blame of those ye better. They're going to blame you and white privilege for their own situation. But that is the reward. That is the old reward of the white man's burden, is to reap the blame, the blame of those ye better and the hate of those ye God. And, someone, and how do you... Yeah? Someone on Twitter described it as eternal repentance without salvation. That Oh, it's the white man's burden. Take up the white man's burden. Ye dare stoop, not stoop to less nor call too loud on freedom to cloak your weariness. By all ye cry or whisper, by all ye leave or do, the silent, sullen peoples shall weigh your gods and you. This is very serious. Take up the white man's burden, have done with childish days, the lightly proffered laurel, the easy ungrudged praise. Don't do the stuff that that people of other of other races are going to like you for. What you have to do comes now to search your manhood through all the thankless years, cold-edged with dear-brought wisdom, the thing that matters, the judgment of your peers. What really matters in Kipling's view is not the esteem market that includes all persons, because black people don't know how to make proper estimations, because they're half devil and half child. All that really matters is the esteem of your fellow whites, and they will esteem you more the more disses you garner from everyone else. The thing that makes whiteness the greatest race of all, the greatest victim of all, the most uh, holy race of all in Kipling's that poem, it's, it's, is it's that willing it to suffer the slings and arrows. Yes, it will do the thankless work. It will lay itself down on the line. It'll be a physical guard. It'll be a silent shield for 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 those. Who, who can't protect themselves, and it will expect no thanks. This is the highest honor. Because, this, this and, is simply and its this duty is, to do it. And this is what, and, and, and when it does get thanks, it's going to be from other white people. And this is what I was experiencing this weekend. Like white people who like brag about how when they're out at vits, they just totally like put themselves down on the line and they just like pushing black people up. And then they get together in their little white cabal and they're like, that's why we are the best. And they don't say that's why we're better than them, but that's like that is that is how they reinforce each other's uh sense of 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 honor of self. Literally literally as we're talking about this, I just opened Twitter and there's a video from what we talked about last time, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or it's now mm. called Chop because they've changed the name. But uh <laughs> which is quite appropriate if you think about a chop. Yeah, I love I love it. It's <laughs> Um, and it is a racially segregated area where white people are forming the fence 
to keep other white people out of the out of the area. Dude, they are taking up the white man's burden. Those guys, when you do, if you ever do anything good in your life in the name of whiteness, that is what you're doing. You're taking up the white man's burden. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Ah! Dude, and apparently yeah, I... two, two brothers like shot each other in chop and then they had to call the police because they couldn't resolve yes. the dispute. Yeah, so uh, that's why they took the autonomous. I think it's why they changed the name. They took the autonomous out because they've decided that actually they can't really be autonomous without uh, emergency services and occasionally police and most importantly ambulances for when people get sick and die and all these terrible things. So they're now just going to turn themselves into an Occupy protest, much like the ones uh, you were involved in back when you was a young whippersnapper. Uh, yes. Uh, for your sins. You, you helped inflict us all with this nonsense, Gabriel. Why don't you tell us about that? I, I meant to ask you last week, but uh, I forgot to. So tell us about Dude, your part in Occupy protests. I, we occupied Goldman Sachs, and I asked them... Who's, who's you, we? Who's we? Me and the other Occupy Goldman Sachs Princeton people. Uh, they Princeton were coming there to recruit. Yes, and we were like, dude, none of you got... You guys literally sold dirty bonds that you knew were worth nothing because the email and cell phone evidence has shown that you knew it was worth nothing, and you sold it to your clients saying that this is worth... This is a great bet... And that is a huge part of the reason that a, that a housing crisis became a global financial crisis because of that leveraging that you actively participated in even when you knew it was bullshit. And then you held off on giving the signals to the market that you knew it was bad for months so that you could shift your position so that you would actually make money out of the crisis, which you then did. And none of you have gone to jail. How can you come and tell us? Sweet 22-year-olds, 21-year-olds that have been studying so hard that what we should go and do is spend the next decade of our life not seeing the sunshine and occasionally doing cocaine with strippers and hookers to try and find some meaning in the world because what we have done is pinned our names and souls to the Goldman Sachs brand. And I said all I asked in my contribution to the, to the Occupy movement, aside from a few other things, was I said, tell me one friend you have who's not in banking. And then, I and then I will go through with this interview. And I didn't have one friend, and so I didn't go through with this interview. That's, that's the greatest inter-elite squabble I've ever heard of in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 it was uh, snooty. I was, they, my they, hair was slicked back. I, I, I made myself, I dressed as, as exactly like the American psycho as I could. That's amazing. I got that's, a straight razor, razor shave so that I'd feel super... 10 out of 10 for pop culture references. Um, and yeah. look how far you've fallen. Now you're doing a, a, a grubby podcast with me. It's, well, it's a long way to go down the hill. <laughs> well, I don't mind. Dude, we, we, we're climbing in the rankings. And our other podcast, the Daily Friend podcast, is the top South African podcast in Apple's politics. Yeah, uh, it, so that's great. It is going very well. I'm very pleased with, with but, how things are going. Dude, I've got a story that I want to tell from last week that I think our listeners will like. And it is about this Do topic, it. right? About the, about the hypocrisy, about the sort of madness of our political s situation. So it's Monday night, the, the night before um, June 16th. And SABC One is filming a debate at Hector Peterson Memorial Acre. Uh, out in the cold, an outdoor kind of shoot, because that way you can have more people there and still adhere to social distancing. To talk about like George Floyd's killing and blackness and white supremacy and the June 16 killing of Hector Peterson and so many more. And why are we sort of still stuck under the yoke of white supremacy? So... I'm invited as one of the guest speakers, but they're like, we're shooting this in four or five segments. So you're going to be in the audience at first, and then we're going to call you to be on stage for one of the last segments. So I'm like, okay, take my spot in the audience. And we're like hanging out and it is proper cold and you're sitting on the cold stone and it's like in the middle of the cold, of the cold front and everyone's masked. And uh, someone points out to me that I'm the only white person there, excepting for the, the, the gaffer. Uh, which, which is the that's a film uh, the dude who holds the the boom stick right yeah the boom yeah. mic 
So, so I, so I don't know. Okay, I, I, uh, uh, I, I've, I felt very comfortable. I've been uh, at that very memorial many times. I was very happy to be there, and I was surrounded. A lot of the people who were around me were kind of school kids in their uniforms, and some of them, you know, when you see like a, a matric school student with the bright shiny eyes and like all the badges that show and the wreaths and then, you know, they're like the, the top try hard student at their schools. I, I get a kick out of that. Had, a, had some chats with them too. Anyway, then, then it starts dude. And the first people on stage are an EFF guy, an ANC guy and a DA guy. But because of social distancing, the DA guy has to sit in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they ask the ANC guys like, oh, yeah, no, this racist thing is terrible. Uh, racism is very bad. And the struggle continues. And then I ask the EFF guy, he says, oh, man, racism is so bad. It's like even worse than that guy said. But it, we agree it's very, very bad. And the struggle continues. Then the DA guy says, oh, man, racism is even worse than those guys were saying. It's very, very bad. And like we have to deal with it. And the, and, and the DA guy was very keen on longer sentences for people like Penny Sparrow, uh, the EFF guy was keen on like more people being tried and sentenced like Penny Sparrow. And the ANC guy was like, we need to make a law. Debate, is it? The ANC guy said, we need to make a law so that it's illegal to say things like what Penny Sparrow said. So it was all premised on the fact that we don't have a law uh, against ra saying racist stuff. And then got to the point where it's like, we definitely need harsher sentences than we already have. Okay. And then they go around again and again, and it's not a debate. They they like each take three turns to just echo exactly the same point. You can blame everything on white supremacy and, and, and we need to deal it's, with it. It's, it's an exercise in showing fealty to the cause. And then the very last thing that the DA guy says though, is like, but I just want to add one more thing. The other two speakers were very correct to say that there's an inextricable link between the economy and racism. And so I just want to add, as long as we don't have jobs in this country, racism will continue. That is why we, as the DA, want to uh, 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 make policy that will allow more jobs to grow. And then they cut to ad break. And you can see the, and then they say, to, you know, you, you, the ANC and EFF guy are welcome to leave the stage. And they turn to each other and they look at the DA guy and they're like, this is why you can't sit next to us, dude. All of us <laughs> were putting party politics to one side. And we left this juicy, juicy bone on the table of jobs. Because we, we were agreeing not to touch that. We must just complain about racism. We, we were agreeing to and talk right about things that end, no one can fix. <laughs> and right at the end, you went and grabbed that bone or, and threw it to the audience of saying the DA is the one who's going to provide jobs. You filthy scumbag. They were not happy. Dude, somehow or another, we get a call from the producer. Look, guys, the sound quality wasn't working. And I can believe it because the, it, it was sounding fit out. So we have to do that whole section again. So then everyone has to go back another half an hour in the cold and we're going to have this debate again. But this time they're a bit miffed with each other, firstly. And secondly, uh, the politicians can't just say the same thing twice in front of a crowd looking spontaneous. They get, you know, the, the mask will slip. So they've got to find something else to say. And they had exhausted every last dude. People had said there's a systematic system of racism that is so systematic. It has systematized itself into the system of our minds and our hearts and our ways of doing. It is a systematic system. Like that kind of I, I, I can't, can't English had know, run just, out just, of resources just, to like help them come up just with the same thing. Yeah. I really wish that critical race theory had less buzzwords. It would be so much more pleasant to to argue with this kind of stuff. If it didn't have reams and reams of soupy, overdone buzzwords that just serve to make life difficult for everyone. Yeah. Dude, but those like guys the, had the, used the, all the, those buzzwords. Yeah. The creepiest one is the whole black bodies thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, I just find it deeply uncomfortable the way that it that the way that it describes black people as bodies. It's really ugh. it's all yeah. on this Foucault biopower rubbish. Yeah. No, it's gross. But, and they were there, but then they had to do something else. So then they started fighting party politics and what the ANC hasn't done and what the EFF will do. And then the DA guy saying why the ANC and the EFF are both just going to lead to more of the same. And oh, it started to get interesting. It started to get live. The good stuff. So was, yeah, it was way more interesting. Then the second section was even more interesting because they went to the audience and they started with a guy in the audience who actually had been a student in 1976 and had been there 
in the riots and he was saying, you know, guys, we fought for so much and like we've gained so much, but it just seems to me like we're squandering so many opportunities. So I'm just passing the baton to you. Like you have to, we have to do something better, something. And they kept saying to him, what is the solution? And he kept saying, I don't know what the solution is. I just know that something isn't working here and we need to think about what that is and actually and 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 be original there's there's like some lack of originality here and i was very touched by that very moved by that it looked like we were like this plane was taking off and that i was in a moment of history sabc one flipping launching having gotten rid of like the first layer of of waffle was like ah something we're gonna get to the truth finally but then we cut to ad break and then the next two people who come on stage like both have like very fancy haircuts and like very fancy outfits and they both speak in like slightly American accents. And uh, and the first one says, you know, I think what we need to do is learn from our American brothers and sisters of color oh, that we we need to imagine more. And it's and and in South Africa, we've got this problem where most of the police are black. And that's a problem because we're just using black bodies to defend white privilege. And what you need to realize, to conscientize yourself too, is that the police are foundationally racist. There was no police before blackness was oppressed. Police were invented for the purpose of policing the black body and that is why no form of police will ever set the black body free. And that is why in America they've called, the Black Lives Matter movement has called for the abolition, the disbandion of all police. And that's what we need to do here in South Africa. We need to ban, we end policing. Oh, no. I, I, I've, got a, I've, got a, I've got a thing to add to this, another anecdote. Uh, one of my friends was watching some crazy TV show uh, news. I think it's called the news, and yeah. they were asking some some. I think it was one of the Minneapolis people who had voted to abolish the police in Minneapolis. What uh, what what are you going to replace the police with? And they said, "Look, the 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 black brain, the black and brown bla- brains, and the black and brown bodies can't conceptualize such a system until the police have been already dismantled." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, dude, it's like that Rosemary is... guy who said, I can't debate, I, you can't expect me to debate uh, using reason as long as Cecil John Rhodes' statue is up against that wall because it's oppressing my blackness. Yeah. And it's, I, it's, it's, it's... I use my blackness to think, so I can't think as long as that statue is there because it's oppressing my blackness. <laughs> okay, dude, so so the, the, the lady said that and then the guy said more of that. He's like, yeah, no, that's so true. And at the same time, we've just got to appreciate, like, you've got to give black, you've got to give the black body money so that it can feed the black body, so that it can rejuvenate the black body, and then we can all be free. Whew. Then you cut to the audience, and like, they they get like one or two stories that they'd already placed because I saw them arranging them before, about like, oh, just 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 more of that, dude. And then they started competing with each other about like, about how bad the problem is. So. <clears throat> She said, you know, the police are racist. Then he said, money itself is racist. As long as we have money, racism is never going to go away. We need to abolish money. Then the next guy said in the audience said, you guys are seeing part of the problem. You're not seeing the whole problem. You're not even After all, who's in charge of the police and who's in charge of the money? It's politicians. And they are in political parties. And political parties were invented by white people to oppress black people. Even if a political party is 100% black, it's still racist. We must end political parties. Democracy is racist. Then the next guy said, dude, you think you've seen the problems. You, you think money's racist, police is racist, politics itself is racist. But you haven't even begun to see the problem. Everything is racist. <laughs> School is racist. University <laughs> is racist. Knowledge is a racist system to alienate the black mind and to promulgate disesteem of itself. This, everything is racist. And then the girl next next to her stood up and said, yes, everything is racist. The only thing that's not racist is black pride. <laughs> I was so happy that I was wearing a mask, bro. Because at the start of the conversation, like, I was excited and then I was getting concerned and irritated and, like, wearing... But then I just was smiling. Like, I was lost in a... 
theatrical spectacle that I could only laugh at. And That's if amazing. someone had seen me laughing at the claim, everything is racist, the money, the police, politics itself, no matter what, business is racist, universities are racist, places of learning are racist. The only thing that's not racist background, I was just smiling and I was very glad that no one could see me smiling. You know what, you know what this is like? It's, 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 not, it's not so much a conversation as it is a choir and everyone has to hit the note and there's a progression in the it has song. It to go higher and higher. Yeah, yeah, it has to go higher and higher until it reaches the crescendo, the crescendo of the, the whole musical piece. Orgasm. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, exactly. And then presumably uh, Nirvana shall appear. So you, once you hit the, the ultimate woke take, then it'll be like uh, a, a, a divine prayer that calls out to the heavens and brings racial utopia on earth. We just need yeah. to find out a way to say uh, that more than everything is racist. We have to go to the next level. And no <laughs> one's figured out the words yet to do it. But when that moment comes, then the great wokening will happen and we'll all be lifted up to our racial heavenly place, except white people, obviously. Yeah, yeah, but they also go to the racial heavenly place because by supporting all of this and asking for no thanks in return, they are the true heroes. They are the <laughs> ultimate best. Because they listen to the choir and they applaud afterwards. And at the end, they'll all get a note saying, you really were one of the good ones. <laughs> yes, dude. What a, what a <laughs> thing to behold. A real adults, whole it's, human it's beings. It's like watching a mass psychosis. It's very strange. It was so odd, dude. And then we had the Nelson Mandela Foundation guy come up and sort of mumble some stuff. But oh, this has been a great conversation and we need to think of good ideas too. You know, the thing is, I said to a friend, like, what, what do you do when someone says everything is racist? And he was like, well, you should find it rewarding in a way because everyone knows that racism must be destroyed. And now we know what racism is. It's everything. Everything, everything must be destroyed. So at I mean, least we know of, what we need to do. We know what yeah, we need a, to do. There's a very sort of Khmer Rouge back to year zero simplicity to that idea. Just destroy everything and then you destroy racism. I mean, dude, that formula must be right. <laughs> I'd be, but yeah, exactly. If everything is destroyed and racism is contained within the set of everything. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just logic. So we should destroy everything. Okay, anyway, then I had my chance and I and I just started with like, I cannot believe we've sat here for an hour and no one has said Collins Causa's name once. No one has said Sibu Cesar Amos's name once. No one has said Petrus Michael's name once. Like, Oh, wonderful. We're here commemorating a, an act of police brutality, remembering how heinous that was, remembering the line never again. And it's happened again. 50 dudes died in police custody or as a result of police action during the lockdown. 400 dudes die every year in this country, at least. 4,000 cases of torture were brought last year to IPED. Several, like scores of cases were brought of police raping people during the lockdown and last year, scores. Like, we have a problem here. And if you think the only problem that there can possibly be is racism, then call it racism. I mean, I'm, I'm enlightened. I never knew that racism was everything or every problem that there is. But like, maybe if you actually care about racism, then you should notice that that's a problem and deal with that problem. And then you should notice that there are other problems, like a lack of police accountability. And that is kind of and, part of the uh, reason that we have such a was... lack of police accountability is that all of the guys who were dead stone cold quiet about Collins' causes and Pierce's and Sibusius' Amos' deaths and allowed the cases to be quashed and brushed it under the carpet, then sort of come back and say, well, no, we realize it's a problem because it shows white supremacy is still to blame. Like, this is how you have a lack of accountability. It's precisely by mistaking race for everything else. And now the best part of it is I did a form, I did my spiel and it was... It was, it was what was the response? Uh, well, I, I, some nodding heads and the, and the SABC uh, interviewer who was with me was like, dude, we should, have, we should have started with you. We would have had a much better conversation. <laughs> no, but then but we then, hold on, the great then insight that on. everything is racism. <laughs> I know, that's also true. Uh so, but then they cut to that, like, can we have one final uh, statement from the audience? And then they went to a guy who'd sought me out before and like asked me what my name was and what I was doing there. And he looked up my work in, and then at one of the breaks came up to me and said, dude, I just looked up the Institute of Race Races. I hadn't heard of it. Everything I'm seeing is amazing. Um, anyway, so they cut to him and he said, 
Guys, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear Connor's cause of his name finally being mentioned and, and the merits of the case finally being discussed. But he has one more thing that hasn't been mentioned, personal responsibility. Like what we need the youth to do is take personal responsibility. He said, I'm black. I've been in boardrooms. I've never experienced racism. I have never experienced racism. I've, if I've ever failed, it's been because I failed. And when I succeed, it's because people know when I'm coming to the party, I'm coming to work. I'm coming to deliver the goods and I'm going to do it faster and cheaper and better than you expected. And this is the attitude that the youth, youth needs to have in this country because there ain't no other attitude that's going to keep you off the streets, away from drugs and in a value-add kind of oriented uh, role in society. And, oh, dude, I was so glad my mask was off at it, that point because I was, must I was been, nodding and smiling furiously in agreement. It must have been wonderful to, for once, not be the, the last sane man on earth. <laughs> oh, Dude, it was, it was, it made my day, man. It made my day. That experience, the, the madness. And, and the thing is, like, I ask myself, what do, what do viewers take home? Like, what, and I think I've got the strong suspicion that everyone, most people watching that at home came away with that guy's last words. And well, thinking, it does sound like you know, the rest of it was the most boring discussion imaginable. Well, it was quite Apart exciting, dude. They, the choir was, was you know, there was a real passion to it. To, once you've heard uh, that song once, it gets very boring. <laughs> yeah, dude, but I, look, I live, I work in the Institute of Race Relations. Even I, I hadn't heard the claim that democracy itself is racist. Although, to be honest, I had heard it once before when I was in a debate on ETV, on Madam Speaker, where uh, this woman, it was a debate against, it was like five of us, and they were going off to Ernst Roots of AfriForum. And he said, well, if you want change, why don't you vote for change? And she said, no, voting in political parties are racist. So I had actually heard that political parties are racist before, but I hadn't heard that the police are foundationally racist, that even if you have a 90% black police force, it's still racist, because now what you're just doing is using black bodies to protect white privilege. That I, was I also like, I also and I also like heard that everything is racist. That was, dude, I was excited. I was excited. No, it's, it's, sure. it's good that we finally reached that point. Uh, I, I really like this debate tactic of just making stuff up. Because it's very useful. I, I really should try it next time I'm in an argument with someone. I'll just say that, yeah, no, uh, the facts comport entirely to my worldview. And <laughs> and if you don't think that so, you're racist, I mean, facts never are mind, racist anyway. So. Yeah, they are racist anyway. But never mind that, like, policing. I think one of the earliest police forces in the UK, for example, is starts around the 1300s, somewhere around there. Uh the the the, the uh, what's his name emperor augustus the first uh, emperor of rome created a urban police force for the city of rome in the year like 15 bc <laughs> this is dude that's because he was preparing he knew yes. that black people were going to come at some point the, the romans he... who were so famously racist that they had uh to use the parlance black and brown emperors at various points <laughs> yeah Dude, but that's how they were building up their credibility. They knew if you just start policing black bodies right away, it's going to be exactly. too obvious. So first you need some black and brown uh, emperors and like a police force in like policing white cities. And then everyone's going to think, oh, police is actually about crime. And then you've got them. Once you've got that it idea. In the 2000 mind, year con game. <laughs> dude, 3D chess. Yeah. Anyway, I think we need to call this to a close because I think we're starting to hit that hour mark. So uh, do you have any final thoughts, any recommendations for what our listeners should look out for this week or read or think about? I don't know. I think you should... Uh... Right, well, well, let me go while you think about it. Yeah. Um, I listened to a podcast from the American small news company, The, the Dispatch. Um, it was an interview of an old... Cuban exile who's been working for the CIA for forever um, and he was just talking about how his life had become very difficult as a CIA information analyst because of the internet. Uh, he used to read three newspapers and know everything he needed to know about what was going on in France and now he literally can't do his job properly because there are far too many sources of information uh, and he was just talking about what he believes is the kind of total chaotic mess that has resulted from social media and how it's going to be irreversible and how we just need to find a way to live with it uh, and that was pretty interesting i thought uh some stuff i would probably disagree with in there but i thought it was food for thought 
So have you got mm. anything? Mm. Well, apparently Black Lives, talking about France, Black Lives Matter in France has, uh, the, some Black Lives Matter activists have been campaigning with uh, sort of, it's all the Jews' fault, uh, placards and posters. I mean, that was inevitable. Whenever a movement gets too crazy, it starts to incorporate some, you know, the Jews were behind it rhetoric. Yeah. So, uh, that sucks. Uh, yeah, not, not great. Especially considering the very, very real history of anti-Semitism in France, i.e. the Dreyfus Affair and the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to look out for. You know, I'm kind of at the stage where my work is in the nothing new, otherwise known as the news. And and so I'm I, I just I am feeling maybe it's winter, but I am feeling like I live for for walking in the park and reading novels and 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 watching silly movies. So I don't know. Watch out for like a great novel. Or something. Yeah, like that's, I just that's and, and, and the underlying the underlying thought there is that reality has overtaken fiction. Like there's just, I just can't like, fiction can't keep up. Reality has moved faster than the speed of human thought. To to use the, the the parlance of the youth, we're memeing at speeds that shouldn't even be possible. So like, if you if you want to feel sane, uh, and 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 sort of be in a world where things kind of make sense but also undermine themselves in ways that sort of seem to strike out to interesting things about the human condition you know read some fiction uh yeah slow yeah. slow down and like read a fantasy book <laughs> yes or something not harry potter as plausible as canceled. that god harry potter has been cancelled <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. Uh, I think uh, I think that's it for today. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, thanks for supporting the IRR. We really appreciate all of you who are friends of the Institute and give your money monthly to support all the good stuff we do. Uh, without your help, it would not be possible. Um, and if you want to become a friend of the Institute, please go to the IRR website, ira.org.za, click join us, sign up. Um, it's we, Well, we think it's worthwhile spending your money on it. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. we do. Uh, it's not easy, keep, but it's definitely worthwhile. Keep keep that flag of liberty flying in, in SA. Um, and we'll catch you on the next episode. See you around, everyone. Keep thinking. Grr, grr.